Welcome to The Wellspring, where the grace of God is bubbling up for you and for all people, wherever you are. The Wellspring Podcast is a digital ministry of Muhlenberg Lutheran Church, coming to you from the friendly city of Harrisonburg, Virginia, where we pray that this time together may truly be a wellspring of God's grace for all people who listen, equipping you with new ways to live out Christ's love. Welcome to the Wellspring. It's a place for grace, grace and faith, and life and you. Hello there. I'm Pastor Alex Zuber. I use he, him pronouns, and I serve as the associate pastor of Muhlenberg Lutheran Church, overseeing youth, campus, and young adult ministry. I'm Ashley Saunders. I use they, she pronouns. I'm a trans rights activist in Rockingham County, and I'm also the children's minister of Muhlenberg Lutheran Church. It's so good for us to be together. This is episode number two, titled The Communal Yes And. Discussing chapters one and two of the book, Trauma Stewardship, An Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others, by Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, our guest host is Ashley Saunders. Ashley brings years of experience in community organizing and advocacy on behalf of transgender kids in her community to a conversation on the reality of a life that is both joy and pain. We reflect on the nature of trauma stewardship as a lifelong practice that is demanding yet deeply rewarding. Ashley offers her reflections on the radical gift of intentionally cultivating joy, even in the midst of trauma. But this kind of thing can't happen alone. We need a community around us. Concluding with a reflection on John 20, 19 through 29, we find a moment in scripture when the community of disciples found both the very real pain of fear that bound them to the upper room and the true joy of Christ's peace in their midst. It matters that in this scene, Jesus still bears the wounds of the world, thus drawing the disciples to meet him in the wounds of the world around them. This communal yes and speaks to the nature of a world that is inherently messy, complicated, beautiful, and beloved, just like you. Well, for episode two of the Wellspring Podcast, I'm very excited to have Ashley Saunders here with us for this important conversation on part one of Trauma Stewardship, an Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others by Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Really excited to hear from Ashley and have her bring her expertise to uh, and her perspective and experience to this conversation on understanding trauma stewardship. Um, and so, Ashley, you introduced yourself briefly there um, as a trans rights activist within uh, Rockingham County's community, um, something that is a part of your personal life and your uh, the passion that you bring to the community around you. Um, glad to have you here as a guest host today. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and the kind of work that you do uh, and and the ways uh, that you meet people in the uh, in the trauma that they are experiencing and walk with those who are hurting. Um, yeah, so uh, three years ago, my um, son Oh, might have been four. We are in a new year. Um, My son came out as trans. And as we walked through him being able to be seen and um, trying to figure out 
people calling him by the correct pronouns and name. We realized that there was a huge deficit within the school system of um, Rockingham County, and there were no policies in place. Um, it was this perfect storm of our governor had just said, you have to have trans policies in place, and you have to support these students, and a school district that was not necessarily ready to do that work. And so <clears throat> my son was really struggling to go to school because he didn't feel supported. And so that trauma came through my front door every day at 3 o'clock. And I couldn't just wait and see if our school board was going to do the right thing. And I wanted my school board to know that there were parents and people in their schools and community who are being directly affected by lack of policy. So that is where I really, it really started out with, I'm the adult, this is my son, and I need to advocate on his behalf. Um, at the time, he was 16. Um, so I needed to speak on his behalf because I am the adult. And, um, and it was very scary for him to put himself out there like that. And that now we've, you know, told this story and people have heard it and we're very kind of known in the community. Everyone knows my son is trans. Um, but at the time, it was still very scary and fresh to all of us. So um, I felt very alone in helping my son. And I went on Facebook and I started a group and I said, if I could just get three people who are seeing this and hearing this and understanding where we're going with our school board, there's an election coming up, um, I would feel less alone. And I just needed to know that there were people out there who would also advocate for my son and students like him. Um, and so I started out with the goal of five, and now there are over 500 people in that group. Um, and we are doing work. We are doing it collectively. We are doing it separately. But it all comes from a place of trying to reduce trauma to a marginalized community by trying to make sure the systems in place are protecting them and not oppressing them. And that is all very complicated and very big because um, to do that work, you do have to... Um, put yourself right in the midst of their trauma um, and also try to take a brunt, the brunt, especially because a lot of these kids are youth, you're trying to take the brunt of the bad. So when people in the community are speaking at school board meetings and they are saying hateful and transphobic things, like we as the adults want to be the ones who absorb that. We want to, they know that it's happening, they know what's being said, but we want to be the ones to say, like, we're the adults showing up. Show up if you can, and we will protect you the best that we can. We, um, but don't, you don't have to put yourself in the line, like, of, of pain and trauma. And so, yeah, that's where this all started and kind of has really, like, seeped into every part of my life. I see society um, very differently. I see systems very differently now. Um, I see the LGBTQAI plus community very differently now, um, both as a member and as someone who um, 
who sees what is happening at a systemic and societal level. So, um, yeah, all around, it's just one of those things where um, this is a, the trauma came to my front door um, because my son needed an advocate and um, he needed someone to hold uh, some of the heaviness that he was carrying with him. And, um, and yeah, that was four years ago, and uh, we're still, as a collective group and me as a person, uh, still uh, moving along. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I appreciate in that that you name the, the heart of this, uh, for lack of a better word, issue for you. Because it wasn't an issue. It was a person. It was your son who walks in through the front door um, of your house every single day in need of love and safety and care and protection. And I think that um, when we look at this introduction here to what trauma stewardship is, uh, I'm really glad to have the perspective of a community organizer. Uh, because so often in those roles, these are folks, particularly the leaders of, of movements like this of any different kind of cause, aren't doing this for abstract issues. They're doing these things when there are heartstrings attached mm -hmm. and when they are uh, putting their own heart, their own love, their own family on the line to do this kind of work. And I also appreciate that you lift up that it's collective work because um, I, in the, the, the impetus for this happening was you finding that you weren't alone in, in this struggle uh, because the first chapter of the book here lifts up a new vision for our collective work. And collective there, I think, is a radical statement in and of itself, recognizing, no, 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 not a new vision for your individual work you have to begin with a fundamental understanding that this is collective. And so organizing community around us to deal with the trauma of our world and to respond to the pain and need of those um, isn't, an, isn't a thought, isn't really explored uh, in a full chapter here because that is the foundation mm -hmm. of this, is to say um, to you who sees the trauma of the world, you are never meant to do this alone, that this is meant to be a new vision for our collective work. Mm -hmm. And so um, this isn't just uh, something that exists for uh, community organizers and, and uh, social activists within communities. Uh, as we lifted up in our introductory episode, uh, Laura speaks about who this book is for in the very beginning of chapter one by saying that trauma stewardship is for social workers, ecologists, teachers, firefighters, medical personnel, police officers, environmentalists, home health aides, military personnel, domestic violence workers, biologists, the staffs at animal shelters, international relief workers, social change activists, those caring for an elderly parent or a young child. In short, anyone who interacts with the suffering, pain, and crisis of others or our planet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, social change activist was on the list, but also beyond that, you interact with the suffering, pain, and crisis of others. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's going to be a point of connection for anybody who wants to bring compassion to the world um, in recognizing that we're going to be interacting with trauma here. And so um, I'm grateful for the perspective that you bring to these conversations and want to take some time to walk through chapters one and two of this book um, so we can we can discuss some of these key learnings that are here. Um, because as she gets into it right from the beginning, she's talking about trauma stewardship as not simply an idea, but defined as a daily practice through 
through individuals, organizations, and society, um, and, and and holds a very important balance, uh, one that I'm grateful that I've gotten to personally see through our uh, relationship here through, through Muhlenberg, is to say that those who support trauma stewardship believe that both joy and pain are realities of life. And I think that's one of the things I've appreciated most about my friendship with you is that um, you are someone that always strikes me as being able to be very realistic about the pain of a community. And yet you have always been a person that I can look to to find joy in the midst of that. And they often feel like competing ideas. How have you experienced joy and pain as competing or, or natural in the course of this kind of work? Um, I, well, I kind of live in a yes and um, mindset. Two things can be true at once. This can be incredibly hard and it can be incredibly rewarding or this can be incredibly hard and you don't feel any reward at all, but still you find what it takes to move on. And so um, I like to feel happy. I like to laugh. Um, I, you know, stand-up comedy is one of my favorite things to to listen to and uh, my family has bits and so um I really um love joy um which sounds weird but it it took me a long time to get to a place where like I loved feeling joy um and so yeah and I when I think about like the juxtaposition of like trauma like holding space for someone who someone who is going through like trauma and then feeling joy at the same you know feeling joy contemporaneously um I think a lot about the first time we went to a school board meeting my son wanted to speak my husband was there I had kind of put out that I wanted people to show up we were going to have signs we were gonna because there were other people who were going to come and the things that they wanted to say the the trans and queer community also have a voice and they deserve to be heard as well and it was huge it was the first time really people had really started to show up to our school board meetings and my son spoke and i spoke um never in a million years did i ever think that would happen and we stayed and it was two hours of comments um and my son sat in the front row, had stated that he is trans, and had to sit for an hour and a half. And I kept saying, you don't have to be here. But he would said, oh, I want to stay. But he had endured an hour and a half of people um, damning him to hell, calling him an abomination, calling him a predator, and not him... Like, not him, not looking at him and saying, you are, but saying that this is the trans and queer community. They are ruining society. They are ruining traditional ideas. And we, I, I had made sure that there were people there to walk people to their cars because, unfortunately, unfortunately when emotions are so high, people get volatile. And so um, my husband was walking people to their cars, and some other men had shown up to do that as well. And at the end of the night, it was like 11 o'clock. And we got in the car, and we both, I held onto the steering wheel, and we, like, we literally screamed. Like, it was guttural. It was just within us. 
we absorbed that room. And my son was like, I don't know if I could ever trust anyone in our community again. And I said, I totally understand that because there were just so many. So I said, what do you want to do? I said, we can go home. We can drive around. Tell me what you want to do. And he was like, I want Taco Bell. (laughs) And like, we are a Taco Bell family. (laughs) We love a good Baja Blast freeze. And I said, you know what? Taco Bell's open until 3 a.m. Let's go. It It was like a Monday night. So I went and got Taco Bell, and we're just raw, Um, and we're eating our Taco Bell, and we're still driving around, and he said, I really want to listen to music, and I said, what do you want to listen to? And he's like, I want to listen to My Chemical Romance. I said, okay, and we turned it on, and we are just driving around Harrisonburg, singing at the top of our lungs, and like holding hands, and then he said, we have to listen to our song, and... Our song is Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yes. Um, Oftentimes when my son was feeling sad and he needed to get out of the house at like 2 a.m., and this has happened like most of his life, we would get in the car and I'd turn it on and we'd drive around and sing. So we are just singing like, you know, Total Eclipse of the Heart, like tears running down our face, holding hands, laughing at how absurd we are, being so grateful that in that, time and space we were there for each other we felt safe um we were eating something that we loved to eat we were listening to a song that brought us joy and we were kind of shedding the just kind of the the icky shell that we had found ourselves in Mm -hmm. literally an hour before we got home around one o'clock in the morning and I said, are you okay? And he said, I don't think so. And I said, well, let's sleep on the couch. So we slept on the couch that night. And we turned on a movie we both like. And it was so hard. It was hard to see so many people in my community who would not think twice about my son being hurt. But then looking at this person who in my home, seeing him live fully as himself was such a relief because there were so many things that came with him starting to feel gender euphoria and starting to be seen. Um, And so I had to really, I had to really feel like we are doing the right thing for my son and we are doing the right thing for for students like my son. Um, But also, I found myself asking my son to protect himself a little more. Be aware of where you are. Don't go anywhere past 11 by yourself. Um, Tell me if if you're having problems with teachers because my son didn't like to talk about it. And so we felt a lot of joy, but also it was a lot of pain. And it wasn't just the pain of people who didn't love my son in that room. It was not the pain of people who wouldn't see my son's humanity. It was the things that they were saying came from such a painful place. Mm-hmm. And they were placing their trauma at my son's feet. They were clothing my son in their trauma. And so my son became the aim of their, became the target of their, um, their hurt and so I had to be the place where my son could take those layers off. And we both had to acknowledge that they were there. 
And so, um, that was a reality for that you. Was that was a, yeah. And it was really a, it really solidified that like, oh, this is like so much bigger than, you know, me being like, my son deserves to hear his, his name at graduation as he feels his name. Um, but I do, I think about that. I think about my watch saying, Hey, your heart rate's been at like 200. Are you okay? That your heart rate is not supposed to be this high sitting at that meeting and then eating Taco Bell with my son and doing something that we loved so much, which was driving around and listening to music that we loved and holding hands and um, being present with one another. And so when I think about that night, um, sometimes I have to allow myself to feel how painful it was. But really, I think about the the care that we took for one another after. And I'm thankful for, you know, my husband who said, I'll go home, you do this. Because he also sat there, and it was very eye-opening for him as well. But he allowed me to take care of our son. And he went and took care of the rest of the household too. So um, even within our family, we have a collective of care um, in making sure that when one of us is hurting, or many of us are hurting, that we are also tending to those who are tending to those who hurt. And so, um, yeah. But it was a lot. And it was, yeah, I think about that a lot. It's a very mixed bag of, like, yeah, I feel like sometimes, I don't know, you just throw it all in the box and shake it, and you never know what's going to fall out when you open the lid um, when I think about that night, so... Well, and I think that I appreciate that story because I, I'm, I'm sitting here saying, oh, I love that. I don't. I don't love that. I don't love the, the pain that your son experienced and the, the pain that you all had to walk through together. But I appreciate the way that, you know, we can ground this whole section here in in this reality and say this is a real experience. I mean, this is real pain that he experienced. And then this is real joy that was no less genuine because of the mm-hmm. um, the pain. And I, I am so I am so grateful for him that he had someone in his life that could be there to help bring him back to to joy that could honor where he was with pain. And you could do the same for yourself yeah. in that space because that that reality that total of uh, that of of both mm-hmm. matters the yes and matters because a a hard correction to be like nope that wasn't real that didn't happen i didn't just hear all those horrific things i'm just going to go i'm going to go pretend i'm going to go i'm going to go to bed like nothing happened tonight yeah. it was just an ordinary night because there was nothing ordinary about that mm-hmm. and this is that's really lifting up the reality yeah. here of saying there is joy and pain they are realities yeah and they're not mutually exclusive and i put my head to the pillow that night and i thought my life is never the same and i had to really like okay do i stop here or do i continue to like fight um and that was it was like yeah core core changing of just the trajectory of how i um oh interact with society and yeah. um, and with systems and with people. Like, it changed everything about how I walk through the world. Um, and I think, too, we, we as, a, as a society, which 
what even is that really? As people, um, we tend to write off small joys and silly things Mm. and be like, that's not real. (laughs) And so like, and so, you know, I love, um, I love food and I'm very food driven. And there are certain things like, especially if I'm craving something, like um, if I if I'm craving an egg roll and I take that first bite and I do a little like shoulder shimmy because it's so good it like speaks directly to my core, like that is a joy and that is a positive and sometimes you can just like put it in the bank and say I felt that joy today you know if that is the only joy you feel that day, um, and I think we we expect like. We, if we have big sad, we expect the joy or happiness to be as big. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you have the big sad or the big stress or the big trauma or the big holding space for trauma, and you have the small joy. But the thing about small joy is if you are feeling big dark, it only takes a little bit of light to yeah. pierce it. And we are okay with that. But we also can't fake joy and we can't fake being in a positive place because if you, well, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I have to seek it out. I have to be like, I have to feel something good right now because it, you know, like I have been experiencing very dark. So now I have to feel at least a little bit of light. So I will seek it out. Mm-hmm. Two things I know guarantee bring me joy, but I'm not going to put fake overly positive things um, into the mix because um, overly positive or fake positivity is just as toxic as like never letting yourself feel joy um, because it's not real. Yeah. And we, ha- we do have to embrace real things. It can't just be, um, I don't know, it can't just be like, the idea of it, it has to be it. Yeah. And, um, and this is so, something that's really grounded in reality. And she, mm-hmm. and she lifts that up later in this first chapter by saying that although trauma stewardship tells us we have choices about where to put our focus, it does not simply involve putting on a happy face. This approach demands that we embrace a paradox. If we are truly to know joy, we cannot afford to shut down our experience of pain. Um, 100%. We hold those things together. And I, I appreciate that you lift up there the way that, you know, you lay down and said life is forever changed. Um, because I think that is that is trauma stewardship right there, is, is to recognize I am changed by what I experience. And I am either going to be passive in that process of being changed. And I'm going to find myself being weathered and worn down by what's happening or I am recognizing that this that is happening is transforming me and I can choose to move with this mm-hmm. and move with these changes in a ways that, that allows me to grow. And that is not easy work. Uh, I really appreciate in this, in this first chapter, she's laying out this case of what is trauma stewardship. Uh, she, she talks about not just saying, oh, okay, I read this book on trauma stewardship and now I get it. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Good for me. I got my. I can get my certificate, and I'm finished. Uh, no, it's hard work. It's de- it's something that's demanded of us every day. Where she says, because the practice of trauma stewardship demands such a high level of consciousness from us, 
I feel uh, it's important to lay some groundwork for the process of self-transformation mm-hmm. um, and, and what she calls her intention. And, and I appreciate that you're getting back to this to these values that are so important that you're trying to cultivate within community. But the hard work here is about being intentional and mindful in the midst of this kind of work. Um, she talks about slowing down, being present mm-hmm. and mindful, um, paying attention in a particular way or on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. I think that applies to self as much as, if not more, than it does to others uh, because we are tending to self first. Uh, And she offers a a quote from uh, Daniel Siegel, a doctor, researcher, and educator who describes mindfulness by saying, being aware of your awareness and paying attention to your intention. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of work is work. And I know you and I have talked about this kind of thing, about the work that goes into maintaining healthy balance in the Mm -hmm. midst of terribly disruptive and painful things like this experience you're talking about with your son and the real pain that was felt there, the real pain that's felt by you, that balance here and and that hard work that goes into it is so important. Um, what what does that kind of look like for you in being present and mindful and being aware of your awareness in the midst of uh, this difficult kind of community work? I often say, like, being self-aware is a bit of a double-edged sword because mm. you're always going to be self-critical. Um, and But also, self-awareness is is beautiful, but you have to find the balance. Um, So I often say, like, I invite whatever I'm feeling, whatever is happening, I invite it to the table, but I don't make a room for it. So Mm -hmm. we will sit and have coffee. I might bring out some pie. We will will have this interaction, but I'm not going to let you stay, overstay your welcome. Yeah. And, um... And yeah, so awareness of and being aware of yourself also requires you to kind of you have everyone has trauma. Yeah. We all, I mean, especially since 2020, societally we have big trauma and then we also have our personal traumas cuz no one gets to walk out of this unscathed. Um and so part of being aware is doing trauma work for yourself. And taking in those things and saying, I have things I have to heal before I can even take on the work of stewarding other people's trauma. I have to heal this first. Um, And that's an awareness because a lot of, like, it's work and it's Mm -hmm. hard. And you're going to have days where you're like, I no longer want to do this. But then, you know, you're rolling a ball down a hill. You're not going to go catch it. Um, Yeah. And then... You have to be aware of triggers. What triggers you to feel anger? What triggers you to feel despair? What makes you joyful? What makes you happy? The, the, the awareness of yourself, the being present in your body is a journey, is a journey. Um, and once you can learn about self, you can find other people who are there. And that is where the collective happens. And we're all at different stages. And so you could say, 
like I have always had the commitment that if my children were queer, I would 100% support them no matter what. Um, and I was raised in the opposite mindset. Um, but I am queer, so I knew if my children were queer, like we were going to just, this house is safe. Yeah. Um, but you're going to meet people who want to do this work with you who are saying, my child is queer. And even though I don't necessarily know if I am okay with it, can't see my quotes, um, <laughs> I, I don't know how much of it I can accept, but I know that I love my child beyond these feelings that I'm having. And collectively, we are doing work because they, they want their child to be safe. But like we're in two totally different places of self-awareness. We're on two totally different planes um, or spaces in the road, um, but we are going to the same destination of self-awareness and being able to trust yourself enough to be a steward of trauma. Um, Because you do have to trust yourself um, and know what your boundaries are and know how much you can handle and when you have to take things off your plate Um, because it comes very quickly Um, Before you're like, wow, I can't lift this anymore. And I don't think I was ever equipped to lift it in the first place. Mm. And it comes very quickly, especially in community organizing, because you start and you see all of the problems and you're like, I'm going to fix it. You know, I have my little hammer and I have all the I've read all the books and I'm listening to all the podcasts and I can do it. And you look around and you're like, Oh, my. (laughs) Like, I can't build a three-story house on my own, and I don't know how many this old houses I should watch to even think I could try. And something that um, she says in this book that um, I highlighted, and I have reread every time I've opened this book, is the truth is that we have no authority over many things in our lives. But what we do control is how we interact with our situation from moment to moment. If we allow our happiness and sense of success to hinge on things outside of ourselves, we will wait for our well-being indefinitely. Mm. So, and I think about that a lot. Um, Because you need that internal sense. mm -hmm. I think that's really where she is drawing us in this mindfulness and this attentiveness and this, this being aware of self. Because... Uh, that that internal drive is the thing that is essential and it keeps you going and keeps you grounded in who you are in the midst mm-hmm. of this because that uh, that to me is a sense of being authentic um, because I think that that is a, a critical thing that people can bring to whatever work of compassion they're mm-hmm. doing in their own lives is a sense of authenticity um, and and you know when we're talking about putting on a face versus experiencing real joy in the midst of that. Um, I don't ever want to put on a face for folks, but I know that I have gone from situations, you know, within my own work and within pastoral ministry of walking with a family who has just experienced a profound loss of life uh, in their family to leaving and going to vacation Bible school that night. And and so there was an element of that Mm -hmm. where I'm like, I need to put on a face 
to get through tonight. And that, to me, felt contextual and didn't feel disingenuous. But, you know, there was, I, I do remember even a moment that night where um, I had a, had a kid who looked at me and asked me if I was okay. And I told him that I, I, I wasn't, that I was, I was hurting and I had, you know, been walking with a family who was dealing with a lot of pain that day. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I, I had a moment to pause and I was feeling very sad for them. And so it wasn't an opportunity for me to just trauma dump. Oh, guess what happened this morning? Right. It was an opportunity for me to, to be authentic with a child while not burdening them and, and letting go of the trauma that I was carrying for someone else. Um, but being authentic and, and being there in the context, the face didn't feel inauthentic because then I knew I had my mm-hmm. spaces to go be cared for in my own way because I'd been caring for others. Right. Um, and so it, it is a balance. It is. It is and, and, but that, that internal drive, I think, is the, is the balance point. Right. And part of being self-aware and part of doing that self-work, we control um, how we interact with situations from moment to moment. And part of that is, yes, we don't have to plaster on a fake smile and be like, no, I'm fine. But what we can do is say, I am really working through something right now. Thank you so much for noticing me. Because that child walked into a stewardship relationship. They saw that you were holding something. And they said, I feel safe enough to ask if you're okay. Mm. And you said, I'm not okay, but I'm going to be okay. And that's great. Hey, we need to, as a society and as a collective and as a community of people, no matter who is in your community, need to be real about that stuff. And so you gave that child an opportunity to see who you genuinely are. And they will go forward and say, sometimes if I ask if someone is okay, they aren't going to be okay. And they will look inside themselves and say, how do I feel about that? But also, you know, you're allowed to say, I'm not okay. I will be okay, but I am not okay. And the more we say it is okay to say, I'm on the journey to okay, but I'm somewhere in between. The more realistically holding people's trauma will be and dealing with your own trauma will be. Because we can't pretend, you know, we talk about generations of people who don't know how to approach their feelings and don't know how to, don't even know how to feel because they were just told, like, you are okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Here you are, you're okay when a child falls down and you pick them up and you brush off their knee. You're okay. They're not okay. Their knee hurts. And you can say, I acknowledge that your knee hurts. How do you feel? What was going on? And so opening the door to say, we don't have to be okay, but we are on the road to okay together. Mm -hmm. Um. Which is why I feel very strongly about um, collective living, mm. communal. Um, we have we live kind of in a way where the individual home, the individual everything is seen 
as like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You do this work. You do your healing. You do this. You do that. When there's that saying many hands make work light, it's the same with the emotional stuff. Yeah. Living in a community, having a goal, feeling everybody coming up to where they are and offering what they can and also being taken care of um, really provides for us to last longer in this journey. It it refuels us. It's like putting gas in your tank when you have half a tank instead of waiting until the light's on. Not that I ever do that. No, no never. Never in my life. No. Um nope. Because it's much easier to put gas in your tank at half. Ask my stepdad. It's much easier to put gas in your tank at half than to call someone who has to come and bring you gas. Um, yeah. Well, and because that's, you know, you know, when you run out of gas in the middle of the road, that can also cause some critical issues right. with the car. And, and it be a danger to yeah. yourself and to others. And no one wants to, to get to that point. And I, I appreciate the... This, this sense of balance and perspective that you're bringing to to making the work go longer because she lifts up this point mm-hmm. in the in the conversation around the wide reality when it begins to sink in about the pains in the world. And you mentioned that when you look at some of the issues that, that are faced mm-hmm. and when some of these problems seem so immense where there's so many setbacks and you can begin to despair and feel hopeless, you can also say, until this is resolved, I'm going to run myself into the ground to deal with it. And she says uh, in here, somewhere between internalizing an ethic of martyrdom and ignoring ongoing crises lies the balance that we must find in order to sustain our work. Yes. And the thing about, like, pastoral care, you you are holding space for people who are dealing with trauma, and you are kind of opening you are taking some of the burden and opening time opening space for them to heal and and it's a very like or most of the time not all of the time because (laughs) it's everything that feels organic has something that pushes back against it but um but you know when when people when you are in a good space to really steward um the it's organic it's a journey Community organizing, especially for what we have been doing, um, there's this huge urgency to it, and there's kind of an end point. Mm. Um, We had a big election. We all ran a very hard race. We all said, this is our focus. We are going to go as fast as we can, as hard as we can. We knew that the work was not going to give us the outcome we wanted. But we couldn't say, we can't do this work. So we had all kind of looked at each other and said, we're doing this work. We recognize that this will end as poorly as it possibly can. And we will pick ourselves up then. But if we looked back and we didn't do this work, and we had to look at people who are harmed by the outcome of this, and said we did nothing, um, I could not live with myself. So community organizing, we ran the race together. We all saw the end. We ran into the same wall. Mm-hmm. And I went on the Facebook group and I said, this is a safe space. Say whatever you need to say. 
And it was lament. Lament after lament after lament. You had parents whose children couldn't sleep that night because they know what's coming. Um, School is no longer safe for them. And we had to say, we have to stop right now. And I allowed helplessness and anger to come to the table because I needed to feel it. Um, Because I'm realistic and I know, I know what is about to happen. So I had to feel it. And I and we all kind of said, we have to feel this real and big, but we are going to come back after we feel it ready to do this incredibly difficult work. And it'll be very hard to see the fruits of this work. Um, I don't know if I will see it. Maybe I will. But I don't know if I will see it while I have a child in the school system. Mm. But the work is there. And if we do nothing, then, you know, but we also have to, we have to say, what are you capable of today? What are you capable of today? If you are not capable of going to a school board meeting, but you are capable of writing an email, please write an email. Let me know how you're feeling. And we collectively are doing this. Had the outcome happened and I was alone, I would have lost sleep. I would have not been able to get out of bed the next day. And I would have just felt like this is the end. No. There's nothing to be done. We, we, there's nothing to be done. And, and kind of just rolled over. But because I have other people, because this is collective, because this is a community, and we trust each other, and it is safe, and we are stewarding each other, as well as protecting kids, um, we are able to move forward, and we will. Um, this is uh, this is one of those moments where I, I feel a little like a bad pastor. Uh, I'll acknowledge this um, because as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm reminded biblically of Moses not seeing the promised land, of Moses not entering the land that was promised to him. Mm-hmm. But that's not what popped into my head first when you said that. I was uh, thinking of the beautiful scene from the end of the first season of Ted Lasso, mm-hmm. uh, where they lose, and and Ted says to the team in the in the locker room after they've just lost this big uh, football match, he says, I want you to be grateful that you're going through this sad moment with all these other folks, because I promise you there's something worse out there than being sad, and that is being alone and being sad. Ain't nobody in this room alone. That scene makes me cry right. all and the it's, time. But it's true. And, um, and so when you are organizing people, and sometimes organizing is very lonely, because you need people to be on the same page as you, mm-hmm. or you need people to respond and be like, I'm stepping up too. Even though, like, I took a huge step back. I had to for my mental health, and I had to deal with some family stuff, and I had to ask other people to kind of to care in a place where I couldn't mm. necessarily put the, the work behind the care. Um, but... When you have a whole group of people, there will be there will be people who say, "I have the energy for this." 
when you don't. Um, I think that is so essential within organizations, within mm-hmm. any system, uh, because I and I've seen that within the life of the church. There's why did this ministry that we were doing for so many years falter and fail? Well, because one person did this so well, and and then they got so burned out there was no one else to pick it up, and everybody just assumed that that person was going to do it forever, and and we don't last forever. We need to be able to take Sabbath and and heal and recover from these things. And so being able to have someone else that can tap in and and help you um, can be life-giving. And it doesn't mean that you failed to be able to let something go and let someone else help you. Speaking that as a point of wisdom that I've heard, not necessarily as a point of experience, uh, I'm not very good at that, of Mm -hmm. letting something go and having others... um, having others take it over. One of the things that I'm going to be working on throughout this month ahead as, you know, we're preparing in my house for the birth of a child. I don't want to let my ministries go. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to hand them off to others so that I don't burn out my colleagues, uh, that I, I need volunteers who can step up and help make some of these mm-hmm. things happen um, because I need to be able to let that go and trust someone else to do it. And and that can't be done alone. That balance can only be found and that, that permission, I think, to, to heal and to find joy. Uh, like she lifts up so much in this in this section, mm-hmm. it can only happen within collective. It can only happen when we're working with others. And I know, you know, when we listed that whole litany of people who this practice of trauma stewardship is for, we talk about caregivers mm-hmm. of of an elderly uh, parent. Um, and and if you're an only child, that can be incredibly isolating. So finding your community in that is gonna look different than a community organizer because not everyone's gonna care about your mom the way that you do uh, as you are walking her through the final days of her life. Um, And so you need to find those that can be around you to be your community and support you when you don't have a way out. Yeah, and I think there is a cultural shift that we are seeing that we can't do it alone. Yeah. And so there are places for caregivers but you have to seek it out and also they're not perfect places i have to chuckle because a church is an interesting um fishbowl to how society works or how human nature is (laughs) yes because at the end of the day if you ask the people of any congregation like how do you feel about the people of your church i love them they're my family Mm -hmm. But <laughs> but it it it's top down. Like mm. the 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 um I'm trying to find a, a nice way to put this, but like the tone is set by the people who are kind of the people in charge and then it kind of, you know, what is what is the tone mm. of um in the expectation of of our fellowship together, um, in churches you will always see a, a wide array of people who all have very different ideas on where things will go. But if you have good, competent leadership, and if you have leadership that recognizes the work at hand, and also that being a human is a very flawed experience. <laughs> You can take that and turn turn it into something really good 
something I really love about our congregation is um, when we have big times of fellowship and you look around and there's so many different personalities and there's so many different ages and people at very different walks of life, but they love the community of the church and they want what's best. They want to hold each other's babies and they want to hold each other when we lose our people. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard to find. But it comes from kind of an expectation and a, a way that is set by leadership. Leadership is the example of it. And people follow that example. Um, but then who takes care of the leaders? <laughs> because yeah. it's it's very hard. Well, and I think that's, you know, within a community like this, I have really appreciated being to turn, being able to turn back to our values and our mission and our vision. Um, you know, when I can look at something uh, like this and say, hey, are we going to do a new podcast? Is that going to be worth our time? And, and we, I say, what is our mission? Our mission is equipping all people to live out Christ's love. This, I hope, is a tool that people can use uh, Mm -hmm. to be able to better understand how to care for themselves and in a healthy way feel equipped to live out Christ's love. And, you know, we can, when we ask questions about what we do, we can say, does this reflect our values of being Mm -hmm. open, authentic, relational, serving? Like, those things help us know who we are as a church community. Um, and, you know, in lifting up that sense of an organization, an organizational self-awareness mm-hmm. is, is a big part of what uh, she talks about in the second chapter of the book being the three, the three levels of trauma stewardship involving personal dynamics, which we've talked about, the way that we bring our, our intentionality to this, our presence, our willingness to engage. And as you're, explain, you're, you're sharing with your own experience, we bring our hearts to this work. Mm-hmm. And it is a very, very, very personal thing. And so that's when taking the pain and the joy together as real and understanding the reality of joy and pain, that is going to be really important in knowing how much our hearts are bound up in the work that we're doing. And then she also lifts up organizational tendencies as a second level of trauma stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so that's where understanding the value and ethic of your organization becomes really, really important. And so sometimes that can be where someone needs to pour their energy, is is to say, I want to do the work within this organization I'm a part of, within this church community, within this company, within this, Mm -hmm. I mean, it could even be family, I think, uh, to, to a, a degree, say, what is our ethic? What is our values? Am I doing the work of trying to sustain those things and keep those out in front of us? Or are we trying to reinvent our our ethic as a, our shared ethic as a collective? Um, and, and you also talked about, you know, we're seeing a shift in culture in a lot of ways about um, not doing this alone. And, and those are the societal forces that mm-hmm. she talks about. So personal, organizational, and societal are the three levels of trauma stewardship. And there's different ways to engage in each of those. And I really, I do appreciate the way that you as a community organizer have it's, it's, it's not going to be so one-dimensional. Everybody yeah. has personal, organizational, and societal, in varying degrees, relationships mm-hmm. within the work of compassion and trauma stewardship that we are doing. Um, because getting Taco Bell isn't something you can do for every trans kid in Rockingham County, but you can do that for your son. Yeah, and it's also um, something that I really take joy in is... Um, because I made a decision to just be like, 
you know, my kid is trans and get it together. Um, everybody knows I have a trans kid. So then if there are families that are like, my kid is gender non-conforming and I don't even know where to start. I know how to kind of lead them into this place. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that um, without living this experience and my son living his experience. Um, and, you know, and it's really like the interesting thing is like organizationally, um, there are people who are very, um, who need to feel like anger, anger mm-hmm. to be able to do this work because it is very hard because, you know, protecting youth is very emotionally heightened. But there are people, and they are needed, because there is a fire in there that not everybody feels. Or everybody, you you just need every, you need a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, but the thing that when you're community organizing in a small community is um, you have to deal with going to the school board meeting on a Monday night, listening to the people of your community say awful things about a marginalized group of students, and then go to Food Lion the next day and see them with their family, checking out their groceries, doing the exact same thing that you are doing. And it creates this weird... It kind of feels like, I don't know, you're kind of watching a TV show. Like, it just creates this weird dynamic. And so I, years ago, during the pandemic, made a commitment within myself to see all of humanity as God's beloved creation. So that means these people that don't even understand why they hate People like my son are still God's beloved creation. And sometimes I have to like really like strip it back. Like, well, this is how they were raised. This is this is this is how they were raised. These are the values that they were taught. This is where they are in their life. They also have kids and a mortgage and are mm-hmm. paying for these groceries and eggs are still three dollars more than they were a year ago for this family too. Yeah. I have to strip it back until I can see their humanity as well. And I'm not giving them a pass. I'm holding them accountable for the harm that they are doing. But I will not only see their hatred. Mm -hmm. And that is privilege. But I'm not asking anyone else to do that either. But I have learned that hate, there's no joy in hate. There's no joy in living afraid. There is no peace in any of it. When you look in the eyes of someone who stands at a microphone for three minutes and says the most, for me it feels unhinged, for them it's their internal reality. And then you look in their eyes after, there is something missing. 
And I never wanted to be that way. So I had to really hold myself accountable because it is very easy to kind of fall into this gristly piece of who you are. And my son had said it to me too, like, when was the last time they belly laughed? When was the last time they like mm-hmm. looked around and said, oh, this is great. When was the last time they went to a community event and looked at everything as a whole and thought, wow, look at all these people that we're investing in each other. You know, I live in a very, I live outside of Harrisonburg. I live in a very small town and we have all kinds of stuff. We have a trick or treat and we have all these things and you go and everybody's talking to everybody because we all know each other. And um, we all invest, but when was the last time that they, like, were in public and they felt safe? Or they were in public and they felt, you know, felt anything other than fear and anger? Well, I I think, you know, dehumanizing someone involves... In a level, I think, uh, not imagining that they can feel joy because, you know, you talk about going to Food Lion and doing the exact same thing as you. Maybe they go to a comedy club and, and belly laugh and we realize, oh, it's not necessarily an us versus them. It's it's just us. And there's anger and trauma mm-hmm. in the mix that lead to these kind of reactions. And maybe there is joy in their life that I can't see. And I want them to experience. I want us to all experience yeah. this joy. And I, But I think that, you know, that refining of a refined vision there, that that sense of everyone is God's beloved child, that kind of intention that is at the heart of you is not easy work, is not an easy thing that you discover. There's a lot of personal work that went into that. That is the the kind of thing that she lifts up in here about the being present, being in in this hard work and being willing to do it. And we're going to get more into self-work later in the book, but... It's it is hard, and that's the difference between being someone who is being directly traumatized by someone yeah. and being a steward of that trauma. Because I can look at the person who is traumatizing someone and say, "There's something deeper going on here," mm-hmm. but I'm not asking the person they are traumatizing to see it through that lens. Yeah, that's an important perspective because we are talking about a next level. We're talking about secondary trauma. We're talking mm-hmm. about a trauma response, not necessarily I am being um, I am being oppressed because the, and she does get into oppression as a dynamic that's in here. And, and so it is a very different dynamic. This is a conversation geared towards those who are willing to bring compassion and care and have the capacity to do that. Um, it's going to be a very different dynamic under the boot of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, and, and when she talks about systematic uh, and, and organizational and societal forces, she definitely gets into systematic oppression, which is, you know, not only something that can feel overwhelming to deal with and like there is no end at sight when it is something so large, um, but it is it is something that is very much a different dynamic for the way that we respond to this mm-hmm. because this kind of work is done at another level of uh, of the of the perspective another level of care and advocacy and intervention and compassion um, and so I appreciate that because it is it is a point um, but, right to, to lift and, up and, in and this. again and then and I think about this a lot because um, like I said, like I try very hard, and it is a faith conviction that I have to practice that. But I have people who don't have that conviction, 
And I am not asking them to do that work. That is my personal work. Um, but, um, but also my seeing their humanity does not change the hurt that they are causing and the destruction and the upholding of oppression, especially when it comes to trans, queer students, and always coming down to black and brown students. Mm -hmm. Because even though I am advocating for a very specific group of students who are especially being attacked right now um, with policy in our school systems... I, I cannot forget that, like, black and brown students are still at the core fighting the, a very similar or the same battle. And so, um, and I'm not asking anybody in that trauma to, again, like, do the work. If, if, if just not being able to see that guy at the grocery store, if seeing the guy at the grocery store causes you more trauma, I understand that. Mm -hmm. I am doing this work because I made a personal conviction. Um, And it is work. Uh, You know, there was a school board meeting where someone who says very vile things about the trans community turned around and looked directly at my son and spoke directly to them. I almost came out of my seat. I'm not a perfect human. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty scrappy. But, um, <laughs> and my son was stunned. And, you know, we were talking after, and he was like, well, that was unexpected. And I was like, yeah, how do you feel about that? And he was like, I'm going to have to watch the replay to see my face. He's like, because I feel like I was smirking because I couldn't believe it was happening. But also, like, don't talk to me. And, you know, and, but at the same time, like, that was scary. Yeah. Turn around and talk directly to me. Okay, now I am, pers- like, this is about me now type of thing. And, um, and so, yeah. But I do think as a trauma steward, as someone who is holding space for someone else's trauma, how we react to the traumatizer, hmm. the oppression in the systems that are causing the trauma. Um, I would never put that expectation on someone who is traumatized because their journey is theirs and their healing is theirs. I'm never going to tell someone how to heal, but I will do everything I can to make sure that the roadblocks of their healing are few. And I I think that is the really important point that she's getting to Mm -hmm. at the conclusion of this chapter and pointing us towards for the next, um, because she she concludes this chapter by uh, saying that individuals, even entire cultures, build up elaborate defenses in order to keep these stark realities, these realities of uh, of pain, uh, out of conscious awareness. And she says, in writing these chapters, I have tried to begin a weakening of these defenses. And so when we talk about roadblocks, when we talk about these things that get in the way, um, that's what we're undermining through our intentionality 
and through our awareness and through our, our willingness to, to, to bear the trauma of others and also to set it down for ourselves and mm-hmm. to find these ways where we are letting go. Um, but there are certainly roadblocks. There are certainly things in the way. Um, and there are, there are, you know, obstacles out there in the wilderness in which we're wandering. And that is what she talks about getting into in the next uh, section where... Uh, she's saying, I'm drawing the atlas for a terrain that you already inhabit, though you may not know exactly where. Uh, in a sense, I have sketched out the borders of a large country, and in part two, I will provide you with the information you may need to determine exactly what state you are in. Mm. And and so I, I think that... Um, this section is so much about the work that you do of holding these things in your heart, of recognizing the pain, recognizing the the wounds of the world, um, but also making space for radical joy. Um, I appreciate that in the midst of all the stuff that happens, I only have to walk one office down in our hallway to know that I'm going to get to either find someone who can completely empathize with the pain that I'm finding and or laugh with me because mm-hmm. we can... We can laugh together, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a belittling of the important work that's being done mm-hmm. to in, in any fashion, any way that we're responding with compassion to our world. It doesn't undermine the work of compassion we do to find our own joy and to yeah. cultivate our own sense of peace uh, in the midst of that. And so with that sense, I want to take an opportunity here at the end of this conversation to turn uh, towards our Bible study, which for this week comes from the Gospel of John. This is in the 20th chapter. Uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he appears to his disciples. And this is um, the New Revised Standard Version, John 20, verses 19 through 29. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any... They are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Thomas is one of my favorite individuals in Scripture. I love this uh, story. And, And this text came up. Uh, the week after Easter, as it does, um, in 2020, right after Easter Sunday, mm-hmm. in the middle of lockdown, when we were really hoping to be back in the sanctuary with full brass and all the joy, and we were still locked down. Yeah. And I remember preaching on this text with 
this totally new perspective on the trauma in this story Mm -hmm. that they were locked behind these doors in fear and Jesus comes into that place and says peace be with you the peace of Christ in that does nothing to change the reality Mm -hmm. that is outside their doors they are still scared they still fear for their lives there are still people out there that want them dead and want violence against them and Jesus says peace be with you as the father has sent me so I send you his peace changed nothing and yet it changed everything because they found peace and joy together yeah. with each other in community. And I also think, you know, maybe this was my upbringing. Are you a doubting Thomas? You know, <laughs> But like through the lens of trauma stewardship, Thomas saw someone he loved so dearly crucified. Yeah. He was still in mourning and when you're in mourning it is hard to to see past so to say hey Jesus is here I can't imagine dare I hope like I don't have it in me to hope that could have been his trauma I don't even have it in me to be like yes I'm excited because I had to self-preserve here because I am so devastated by the egregious violence that I saw. Yeah. And I think it's okay to want to touch and see before we have hope. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's yeah. self-work. And yeah. that, is, that is the work of self. And Jesus didn't say, get it together, Thomas. You heard I was here and you didn't believe. No. Jesus said... I know what it takes for you to feel this hope again, and I am going to do that work with you. You may touch my hands, and you may touch my side. Jesus said, I see where you are in your trauma, and if this is what it takes for you to feel safe, this is what we will do. Yeah. And and that's that's the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and... Jesus is bearing the wounds. This isn't pristine and healed Jesus. This is Jesus still bearing the wounds of the world with Thomas. Mm-hmm. That is trauma stewardship. That That is this work. That is life-giving, and that is grace. And and to and I think that you know as we as we read this again, trauma stewardship is not written from a Christian perspective mm-hmm. for a Christian audience. But as we are trying to bring a Christian ethic uh, to this uh, to this understanding of how we steward our trauma, I, we find Christ in the wounds of the world, mm-hmm. and and to go and sit with someone who is hurting and say, yeah, this wound is real. This pain you're experiencing is real. Do you want to scream in the car about it and then go get Taco Bell? Like, that is grace. These little moments of hope and joy, these little moments of peace are grace that is transformative. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, we see also the strength of Thomas who is willing to face the wounds, yeah. who's who's finds the the strength in the presence of Christ to say, "I am willing to to touch and see this horrific violence that has hurt me. I can bear this now because we're mm-hmm. doing this together. I'm not left to my own devices like I was a week ago, wandering the city alone. 
I don't know where he was, but I can't imagine he was in a good place. And so we have Jesus who meets him in that pain and is willing to bear that with him because Jesus says, peace in this place. Outside these doors, ah, so much. I get it. It's scary. It's bad, yo. Like, but peace here, peace with you, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And what we do in trauma stewardship, what we do in bearing witness to the wounds of the world is nothing less than bearing and witnessing to the presence of Christ in our world. And, and what a gift, what grace it is to be realistic about the realities of both joy and pain. Yes. Um, there is so much that wants to take an easy way out and ignore the reality of pain. Mm. And I think part of trauma stewardship is being realistic about it while choosing not to burden others with it unnecessarily, to be honest authentic about who we are in these kind of conversations uh, and to engage in this this work of healing for ourselves and for the world around us. And I think as we talk about communal things, um, there are going to be safe people that steward your trauma as you are stewarding other people's trauma because no one walks out unscathed. Everyone has trauma. And so... Jesus had trauma. Mm. He was murdered in the most violent way by a government. Like, just, I sometimes the Easter story is a lot to handle. And, um, and Thomas had trauma from seeing his friend murdered, but they could take care of one another. And so I think that's really what it is, is communal. Um, you will have the people you trust with your trauma who steward your trauma while you are stewarding other people's trauma. But as long as we go out and we say no one is feeling it alone, this is a soft place, this is a safe place, then we are doing the work of Jesus. Because Jesus said you are never alone. And Thomas needed a safe place. And Thomas needed a safe place to be like, I doubted this was real. And he was not chastised, but told, I know what it's going to take. Here, I'm willing to do this work with you. I think it's beautiful. And I, when I feel hopeless or helpless in all of this, I remember that, like, this work, if we take care of ourselves and constantly take care of ourselves and others, this work will bear good fruit. Yeah. And grace is knowing that the tree may be ugly, but the fruit will be plentiful. <laughs> but we got to get there. Um, and so, yeah. The older I get and the more I dive into who Jesus was as a person, especially like in stories like this, I realize that like Jesus laid the, the blueprint for both having trauma and holding space for other people's trauma because he was human. And divine. And divine. And so even though oftentimes I'm like, yeah, I'm just human. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that is an important <laughs> caveat for this yeah. conversation between <laughs> like, two just humans. Like I will strive <laughs> to follow the example of Jesus, but I also recognize that Jesus was divinity incarnate, and so yeah. um, <laughs> the the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot there, but also like I understand like the depths of my own humanity. Um, we're being realistic about that, right. which is the... And that's part of knowing self, is realistically knowing. But holding each other, holding each other, trusting people to hold your trauma while you hold other people's trauma is a call of Jesus. And we are capable. And um, I'm so thankful for the people in my life who hold my trauma so that I have the strength to be realistic with myself and then go and hold space for other people's trauma. I could not do it alone. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you know, as two mortals that are here doing this work, uh, and for all the other mortals who are listening uh, to this podcast, I want to wrap up our time today with uh, a couple questions that you can use for your own self-reflection or, as we've seen, the value here within this section uh, in community. Find a conversation partner uh, who you can you can share this with. But we want to lift up a few questions based on this section. Uh, one is a two-part question of balance here. How do you invite joy? That's Ashley's question. I really appreciate her lifting that up of how do you invite joy? And then I probably divided the balance of that to say, how do you hold pain? Mm. Um, how do you invite joy and how do you hold pain? Two important questions for reflection this week. And what wounds of the world, or as we've seen in this story, what wounds of Christ are you being called to witness to in the world around you? Um, I think there's a lot of self-reflection that can be done in just those questions, so we'll leave it with just those uh, for this week. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for for this conversation today and for being a part of this. Um, For those that are listening, I'd like to encourage you to discuss those questions or anything else that you heard or were challenged by or encouraged by within this conversation uh, with a conversation partner. Whatever you're comfortable sharing, you're also invited to share your reflections in the comment section of our Muhlenberg Lutheran Facebook page, uh, on our Instagram at Muhlenberg LC, or on YouTube in the spaces where this podcast is made available. So thank Thank you for gathering with us today around the Wellspring. We're looking forward to another episode next week. You can learn more about our congregation online or by joining us for worship each Sunday at 8.30 and 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with the 11 o'clock services streamed live on Facebook and YouTube. Your financial support of the Ministry of Muhlenberg makes the many ministries, including digital ones like this, possible for our community. You can make your gifts online at www.muhlenberglutheran.org slash give. I'm Pastor Alex Zuber. And I'm Ashley Saunders. And we are so glad that we could be together today. I pray that God's grace has bubbled up to meet you wherever you are. Now, go in peace to live out Christ's love. <laughs>